1: Welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Just the microphone here. What's up, everyone? Got a little something different in store for you today. Just pull it up here. All right, so I think we probably did uh, plenty um, on Whitehead for uh, the time being. I'll I'll definitely return to it, but um, there's some interesting things that pop up from time to time, and I want to be able to talk about those things, too. And I think I was reluctant to do that in the past because I, when interesting things pop up, it's usually questions that I have or things I don't understand. And um, bringing things I don't understand to the podcast for you guys, it didn't seem responsible to me. It seemed like it might be unnecessarily confusing. But then I got to thinking about it, it's like those questions are the, what's most interesting to me. And the things that are fascinating to me may very well be fascinating to you. Um, so just like you come along with me on these solo episodes through the, um, learning and teaching process of whatever we're studying together, uh, which is really how I see it. I think I'm going to let you in on this. I'm going to let you in on the things that I find interesting, try to figure out, try to see if I can figure out how to explain what's interesting about it, what catches my attention, um, that kind of thing. So I'll mention that, uh, I usually am pretty good about keeping up on the Jordan Peterson podcast and a couple others that I listen to religiously, Uh, but I haven't been great about keeping up on Jordan Peterson, um, or Joe Rogan for that matter. Lately, I had a lot going on and I missed some pretty good ones. Somebody on Twitter um, that I've been interacting with quite a bit made some remark about one of the podcasts that Jordan did with... um, his friend John Verveke, and we've been seeing Verveke pop up a bunch. Him and Jonathan Pajot, Um they were both on um, the the uh, Exodus um, series that Jordan put together for the Daily Wire, and they both been doing podcasts and other interviews quite a bit recently. So I don't know why that might be, but I'm kind of glad because uh, getting introduced to John Verveke has been interesting, especially because. Because how he interacts with Jordan, that they seem to be on the same level when it comes to vocabulary, which is hard enough when you're talking about difficult concepts um, like consciousness, uh, philosophy of mind, religion, uh, uh, mysticism, psychedelics. People create their own languages um, for that. You can see that in different religious traditions, uh, especially if you study Sanskrit, if you study uh, Indian philosophy, which has a tremendous amount of great, great, like mystical stuff in it. But if you don't understand the language, it's very difficult. Um, But John and Jordan speak the same language. They're both psychologists. They both taught at the University of Toronto. John still does. They shared many students in common over the years. So I think they have a common ground that makes the conversation really, really interesting and really compelling. So I listened to this episode of the Jordan Peterson podcast, episode 321. It's called... A conversation so intense it might transcend time and space. So that tells you everything you need to know. I would recommend you listen to it. Um, But there were some things they were talking about. I'm not even through with the episode, by the way. And there's been a handful of things that have been tremendous that I can't wait to get into more. But one of them came up um, from John. He talks about this idea of um, relevance, realization. So we're going to talk about that. And this is what got me into thinking along the lines that we're going to discuss today. There's something that towards the end, we can link back to, um, to another Jordan Peterson, um, idea that I found compelling about morality. So without further ado, I'm going to jump into this. Hopefully it won't be, won't be too sloppy. Um, so follow with me if you can. Um, okay. So If you do a quick internet search on John Vrveke, what you'll find is that there's a summary that you'll find of his academic work. Like what contributions has he made to academia? What contributions has he made to the study of psychology? He's a professor of cognitive psychology. And his work is summarized like this. His work constructs a bridge between science and spirituality in order to understand the experience of meaning. So you can see... When we're talking about understanding the experience of meaning fits right into Jordan Peterson's work. His, his, you know, his main uh, academic work was called maps of meaning. It's all about, you know, trying to understand what makes things meaningful and what meaning means and all that sort of stuff. It's very, very deep and interesting. But I think the connection that John is going to make that John Bervicki is going to make is that meaningfulness is really, it's really a synonym for relevance you know whether something is meaningful is very very closely tied to whether we consider it to be relevant meaning and relevance what do you think so i was a little wishy-washy when i was thinking about meaning being equivalent to relevance i was like i don't know about that but if i change the language a little bit and say meaningfulness then i then i start to understand maybe there is something really closely tied together between Meaningfulness, what makes something meaningful, and this idea of relevance. So we'll jump right into kind of my summary of uh, the podcast and my thoughts about uh, kind of what was said. So obviously, if you haven't listened to it, I'll just give you a little bit here. Um, the podcast discussion between Jordan and John, it focuses on the topic of consciousness, not right away, but it changes to the topic of consciousness almost immediately. And, you know, I'm strapped in at that point. I'm like, yes, yes, let's go. And in teeing up the landscape, uh, Jordan and John summarize the problems philosophers and scientists have had in explaining consciousness. It's a mystery. It's a deep, deep mystery. You may remember we, we talked about this with um, episodes we did on David Chalmers' book, The Conscious Mind. We talked about it when we were looking at um, Dr. Hughes' book, Modes of Sentience. We've talked about it uh, in regards to religion and Indian philosophy and all kinds of things, pre-Socratics and Platonic philosophy. And the idea of consciousness is very, very interesting and difficult to define. Um, Chalmers chalks it up to what he calls the hard problem of consciousness. And that the idea of the hard problem of consciousness is not about the nuts and bolts. It's not about the mechanics of it. It's not about how a brain might be able to facilitate consciousness. It's about why consciousness exists at all. Why does it exist at all? What what function does it serve? And it does seem to provide this non-material reality. The things that Chalmers talks about, he calls qualia, but the qualities of our experience, you know, the idea that we have experience, first of all, that that it's something that it is like to do a podcast. There's something that it's like for us to listen to a podcast. There's something that it's like for us to to sleep or dream and, and act and, and, you know, all that stuff. There's, there's an experience behind it, something that it's like to us and things fall into that category like color and it's very difficult to understand What is color? You know, scientists will tell you that color exists in the world, and you you want to agree with that because you look around at the world and you see it. But the truth is, you might have, you know, light being absorbed and reflected. You might have all of this sophisticated science to explain what's happening, uh, you know, in terms of visual perception. But the truth is, the color doesn't exist in the world. The experience of color doesn't exist in the world. You might have light being absorbed and reflected in a certain wavelength, And all that's math, all that is abstract. None of that means what it's like to see red, none of it. So there's a deep mystery to consciousness. And so this is the first thing they point out. And John breaks it up into two components, the problem of consciousness. The first one is, why have consciousness at all? And how and why does it function? And then there's a series of related questions that come to mind. At least they do to mine, probably to yours as well. What does consciousness actually do? If it evolved, why did it evolve? What problem was nature adapting to solve when it came up with consciousness as the solution? You know, if we're going to be very biological, very physical and material, that's what we should be looking for. If it evolved, if consciousness didn't always exist, it's not fundamental like the idealists believe, like I believe, um, why did it evolve? What would have caused such a thing? And this leads John and Jordan uh, to reference the famous thought experiment popularized by David Chalmers' book I just mentioned, The Conscious Mind. And it hypothesizes a zombie version of a human being. So imagine a zombie version of you. What do I mean by that? What does David mean by that? So in this thought experiment, we're asked to consider a human being, alive and functioning, but with no consciousness. A zombie, right? It functions by stimulus response, but it has no experience. It walks, talks, acts, eats, sleeps, flees from danger, and pursues opportunities. It is in every way identical to a real human being. But within, as Chalmers says, it's all darkness. In our modern age, we might conceive of a far-off, sophisticated AI robot in much the same way as this zombie. It looks like a duck. and walks like a duck, as they say. But it has no inner experience. So next, we're asked to compare this creature... To its real human twin and decide if there's a difference. Is there a difference between the zombie you that looks and acts exactly like you do and the real you? Now, we can't tell from an outside perspective. We can't tell if there's any difference at all, because they're acting exactly like you'd expect a human being to act. They look exactly like you'd expect a human being to look. They react like you'd expect a human being to react. But most people would agree there is a difference. And that difference is consciousness. The real version is a conscious being. The zombie is just a zombie. So the natural next question is, okay, so what does consciousness do? If a zombie or AI robot can manage to survive, thrive, and perpetuate itself into the future... What advantage would becoming conscious provide? What, what survival advantage? Why would consciousness have evolved at all? See, it seems to me like this extra feature, consciousness that the zombie doesn't have, would come at a cost. Say, cognitive or processing effort, maybe the calories that it takes to, to kind of have this function happening in your brain. You know, it comes at a cost, just like the human being's ability to speak the way we do comes at a cost. Uh one of one of those costs in case you don't know is that we can choke and suffocate and die. That's a real serious cost, right? Because our you know machinery here is constructed in such a way that allows us to speak in all these sophisticated ways that we're doing. Chimpanzees on the other hand have no no issue. They're never going to choke on their food, they're never going to die from it, but they can't speak, right? So Evolution chooses whether whether the costs outweigh the benefits or the benefits outweigh the costs, and it seems if we look at uh, ourselves that the ability to speak outweighs by far the risk that we might choke and die on our food, that kind of thing. And evolution doesn't preserve anything costly unless the benefits outweigh those costs. So, what are those benefits? What are the benefits of being conscious? If a zombie survives and thrives in the world and perpetuates itself into the future, just like any biological organism is, is going to do or going to want to do, why why become conscious at all? Why add that extra thing? What benefit does it give to have that conscious experience? What do you think? We're talking strictly from a biological perspective. I, it's difficult to say what benefit it offers. So let's get back to the podcast. John proposes something that he calls relevance realization. He said, This may actually be the function of consciousness, what it does, and what the benefit it offers actually is relevance realization. This is the reason the adaptive advantage that makes the cost worthwhile and allows evolution to preserve it. Okay. But what does he mean by irrelevance realization? He must mean something like what it sounds like, that we have a survival advantage if we have a means of identifying those things in our environment that are useful for our survival and equally for those things that aren't if we can more efficiently identify what is relevant in achieving our aims, we become vastly more efficient creatures. And this seems plausible to me. Seems plausible. And it does succeed in identifying the functional difference between myself and my unconscious zombie twin or my AI twin, doesn't it? If I'm I'm able to more efficiently identify relevance... And my AI twin, let's say, has to do all the calculations. It seems like I may very well have an advantage over the AI version. And certainly over the stimulus response zombie version. That's going to allow me to survive. It's going to give me an edge over them. So there's an adaptive advantage, a survival advantage there. So the, the zombie, they're gonna, or the AI for that matter, they're going to wander around aimlessly in search of stimulus to respond to. But I am guided in my wanderings by those components of the environment that shine out as relevant. If you don't know what I mean by shine out as relevant, I think you do actually know what I mean. You know, it's like you're trying to, this is, this is straight from Maps of Meaning, but you're trying to get to work and you're a little bit late and you uh, run out on the street and there's a, beautiful woman there, but she's standing in your way and you look at her and she's an obstacle to you because you're running late, right? But if you would have left 10 minutes earlier and you weren't running late, that same woman wouldn't have been an obstacle to you. Maybe she would have been a refreshing experience, you know, some, just a, a, a pretty smile from a beautiful lady in a friendly manner on the street. You know what I mean? It's relevant based upon what your aims are, what your goals are, and being able to see those things that are relevant, being able to pick them out that That's going to give us an advantage. Now, while we seem to be making progress along these lines, Jordan and John proceed to muddy up the intellectual waters something terrible by introducing the idea of consciousness as something more fundamental, as the bedrock of being. See, now we're getting hippy-dippy here. We're talking about being. What does that mean? So this is sort of an idealist or a panpsychist, maybe kind of a, approach, and we've talked about that many times. But it's one thing to talk about consciousness as giving you a survival advantage over something that isn't conscious. But if you talk to an idealist or a panpsychist, they they are likely going to tell you that there isn't anything that's not conscious, right? So it's not. The truth is, a zombie doesn't exist, and a sophisticated AI robot twin of a human being doesn't exist. Everything that does may very well be conscious. An idealist might go so far as to say that it's made of consciousness or made of mind, and that's this fund—that's what's fundamental in the world. So this is the kind of conversation we're having now. It's not about whether consciousness gives a survival advantage, although it seems to in the way that John says uh, in in terms of relevance real- realization. But in, in this case, as something fundamental to reality itself, fundamental to our experience. Now. I say this many times, but I'll say it again, there really isn't a difference to us between the world and our experience of the world. I think we would agree that there is a difference, uh, or that there may be a difference. And Descartes says something like that. He says, uh, and I'll, I'll butcher the quote, but he says that the idea of the sun that we hold in our mind, when we, when we imagine the sun or think about it or reflect on it, isn't the sun. Right? I'm not knocking on the the door of the sun and and shaking its hand. It's not an intimate experience of the sun. So the idea in my mind of the sun isn't the same thing as the sun itself. So there's something like that 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 should be considered as well. Um, So our experience of the world, even though it may not be reflective of the world as it is objectively, as it really is, it's the only thing that we have access to. It's the only bridge between us and, the, and objective reality, whatever that may be. So, consciousness, the thing that allows us to have experience, that is the bedrock of being. Because without it, there would be no world. There would be no conscious experience. We can see this perspective when we acknowledge that our access to reality is mediated by our consciousness. The only way we know ourselves and the world around us is through experience. Through our sense experience and all our various modes of feeling, emotional and psychological included, we do not, cannot touch reality in any other way than through conscious experience. In this light, we can say something like, consciousness is that which makes experience possible. It is the creator of experience. It is the creator of the world of our experience. It is the creator of the world. It can easily be compared or conflated with the idea of God. And to be clear, I'm not sure there is a distinction. Now, this brings to mind an argument I've been having with myself and actually had with my wife in the car the other day when we were driving about God, about what God means, when we analyze our mystic and religious traditions in search of what God is, we come to, I think, two defining principles. God is creator, the origin of all, the uncaused cause, the reason for reality as we know it. So that's one, one aspect, one principle. The other one that always seems to be attached to this idea is a moral authority and judge a sort of designer of ethical standards and behavior a governor of behavior and thought something like that so god is the explanation for where the cosmos comes from and where morality comes from full stop anything else attributed to god as far as i'm concerned is window dressing the myths the stories the dogma the rules In fact, I, I struggled even with the idea of the moral peace. That's something that I should probably admit to. I, I think, when I think of God, I think of creator, origin, reason, cause. That's what I think of. I don't, I don't really understand how God as the explanation for reality, as the creator, I don't understand how that is tied to any sort of moral implications. It's really difficult for me to to understand that, and yet every world religion does. Every world religion uses God and the authority of God as the basis of uh, of our behavior, of mediating our behavior and morality. But I think John Brzezinski is going to give us some insight into this that's compelling. It's even compelling to me. So let's continue. All right, the first principle has always hit me hard. God is creator. But the second, the moral principle, has been a point of contention. Apart from the phenomena of conscience, I'm, here I hear I'm talking about conscience and not consciousness, I'm talking about the Jiminy Cricket, I'm talking about the voice in our head and the feeling in our heart when we do something wrong, right, or do something right. I'm not going to write conscience off. I'm not going to write that off. But I'm not going to speak to it either. It seems to me that morality emerges by example. It is a social phenomenon. If I was the only man on earth, there would be no morality. Morality is a social phenomenon, which developed by trial and error over countless generations. And that's exactly how our system of law developed, by the way. English common law developed by generations and generations of people fucking up and, and society having to cobble things back together and say, no, you can't do that. And figuring out each time something goes wrong, how to, how to make small changes to the law so that it's more correct and more just. We see how our choices and actions pan out for us and the greater community, and we pivot trying to achieve those things we deem good, desirable, or as John might prefer, relevant. What are those things? In general, seems like greater and greater levels of peace and prosperity. If we can achieve that, that's the that's a, that's a good, that's a social good, and we all seem to agree on that. But how do we deem anything good exactly? Isn't that the heart of the moral question? And what does that have to do with God? What does the existence of a creator, if you grant me that, say about what is good? You might infer that creation itself is good, since that is what God concerns itself with. And the Bible would agree. You you might remember the quote from Genesis, when God's doing all of his creation, and God saw that it was good but this strikes me as an unsatisfying answer. Let's return to the idea of God as the bedrock of being, as consciousness, the realizer of relevance. Does this change the picture at all? As it happens, Jordan made an interesting argument in his book, Maps of Meaning, which plays into this perfectly. He pointed out that there are an infinite number of facts, there are an infinite number of facts in the world. You know, he, he often will bring up the um, uh, the Monet paintings called Haystacks, where Monet paints the same haystack over and over and over and over again. He paints it at different times a day with different shadows and different light, and the same object is in every painting completely different. And it's something like that that he means when he says there are an infinite number of facts. And, as such, an infinite number of ways of synthesizing those facts. You know, of of combining them together, together and making something cohesive or making some story out of them. There's an infinite number of those. And so there's an infinite number of ways of acting in the world. How we can choose anything from an infinite number of things is therefore as fascinating a mystery as consciousness itself How do we choose anything? The solution, according to Jordan, brings us back to morality. As he frames it, when we act, we are selecting one action over all other possible actions. Right? We've got a plethora of choices in front of us and we select one. What does that mean? In so doing, we are saying this is better than that. Or more to the point, this is good and that is not. So you can see that we are making a value judgment each and every time we choose, decide, or act upon anything. What we deem good is the best of all possible things by our determination. It is, as John might say, the thing most relevant for our desired ends and for our survival. We are able to make this moral judgment only because we are conscious, only because we have the capacity to categorize our environment hierarchically based upon what is most relevant for us here and now and in the future. It's amazing. I must say, This makes me think twice about writing off the moral principle as a legitimate and fundamental part of God. If God is the creator of the cosmos, he must also be the principle by which the cosmos acts, lives, and transforms. It is consciousness that guides this transformation by following moral intuition, by selecting the good Biologists say this already, by the way. They speak of nature selecting those properties that facilitate survival and thriving. Natural selection. Sexual selection, right? Even nature selects the good. Even nature follows the same moral law. What do you think? Do you think our consciousness is a sort of moral organ? Do you think consciousness, as framed in the Gospel of John as Logos, say, is the creator of the cosmos? Can these things be one? The Gospel of John says, in the beginning was Logos, and the Logos was God, and the Logos was with God. The thing that created us we carry with us. Does that sound like consciousness to you?
0: Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.